Dear Lord God, we thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you for how your mercies are new every morning. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come to you and to ask for your wisdom and guidance in, um, in the stories that we hear in the world and the stories that are told in our culture through film. And so we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to you, um, to your truth, and that in beholding your face and beholding the truth of your love, we would be transformed. And so we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, so one question to ask, why even have a film class? And I try to start, try to include that in almost all my film classes, um, every, especially when I do a series and I'll do it once again, you know, once about once a year. Why would we see um, clips from a film on a Sunday morning. What is the benefit of that? You know, we want, we want mostly scripture on Sunday mornings, right? We want to be able to really learn how to read our Bibles and be able to take that home with us. Well, something is, something about stories. We see in scripture that Jesus himself talks through parables. He tells stories to help people understand the truth of the gospel. He tells stories to convict people of sin. He tells stories to draw people in and cause us to incline and try to find out more about what he's saying. And when we look, um, one example of storytelling in scripture that I use a lot to be able to show storytelling, it has this transformative effect on us that someone tells us a story and we're more inclined to hear them and lean a little bit more into what they're saying than if they just told us this is what it is point blank or this is what it is in a very left uh, right brain kind of left brain kind of way a right brain story brings you along in the narrative and you are hooked perfect example of that is in um, when you hear about David with his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah how he sent how he committed adultery with um, Bathsheba and sent Uriah to the front lines of the war and the prophet Nathan comes to him and he tells him a story about a man who had a little lamb, a poor man who only had one little lamb. And this wealthy man came along, stole the lamb, killed the lamb, ate the lamb. And um, then Nathan goes on to say to King David, now what should, this, what should happen with this rich man that came along and stole the lamb? And he says, he should be put to death. And then, of course, Nathan turns the tide. It's the story that causes King David to say, that's wrong, because it, with his position of power, he might never have said that. Um, it's the story that causes him to come to repentance, because then Nathan can say, that rich man is you. You are that person that has stolen the little lamb of Bathsheba. And so stories convict us, stories help us. And in our culture, we have a lot of stories that are told particularly visually through film. So I've chosen three films this year. I chose Spotlight that we'll look at today. We're going to look at The Revenant next week. And then the week after that, we'll look at, we'll end on a high note with Mad Max Fury Road because these first two ones are a little bit depressing. So, and that one's just weird yeah, one's and fun. <laughs> well, it is a little bit, it starts out depressing, but it's very, it's very uplifting at the end, I find. Maybe? Yeah. yeah. See, there you go. Make it to the end. I like a happy ending. I'm good. Well, and the other two, this week and next week, there is a little bit of a happy ending. Both this week and next week, we'll be looking at um, films that are based on true stories. So Spotlight, I've chosen Spotlight because it was nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director and Best Original Screenplay. Those are all signs it's going to be a good movie. If you have one great performance with a Best Actor nomination, that's great. But if you have all of those three, you can say, wow, this is going to be a movie that I might not want to miss. The acting is decent. 
I, but no one got nominated for anything, and you can see why. I mean, it's decent. It's a good ensemble cast. The main character, Walter Robinson, it, who's the editor and leader of the team, remember this is a team, it's about a team of reporters, and I'll go into that in a minute, is played by Michael Keaton, and he's had a little bit more of a heyday after his um, big win for Birdman last year. Birdman won Best Film last year. So he's, his career's got a little boost. Good for him. Um, but this film is distinctly dis depressing. I will just say that. If you know anything about it, the topic material is heavy and it's based on a true story and so I'll try not to tell you too much about the ending of it except you're just going to find out anyway even if you were to read any article online if you know anything about the history of what happened um, so spoiler alert alert but I won't spoil the ending without I would never spoil the ending if I if I thought it was worth seeing only for the ending anytime I talk about stuff that happens later on in a movie it's because I want I think it's worth seeing even if you know that that's what happens later on in the movie. So I do commend it to you. So let's, let's watch the trailer and then I'll tell you a little bit more about it. Oh, oh I did that. That was my fault. Oh, just comes back. It can help us if sound owned. But I also know there's a story here and I think everybody will hear about it. Do you think your paper has the resources to take that on? I'm going to start from the beginning. I do. I like the beginning of the trailer. Just I like seeing the green screen. It's like I'm conditioned to like it. I know there's things you cannot tell me. But I also know there's a story here, and I think everybody will hear about it. Do you think your paper has the resources to take that on? I do. Do you? Boston priests molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years. The church found out about it and did nothing. We haven't committed any long-term investigative resources to the case. No, we haven't. And that's the kind of thing your team would do. Spotlight. Guys, listen. Everybody's going to be interested in this. Obviously, the church will fight us very hard. Trying to get some background information. I don't want you recording this in any way, shape, or form. Nothing. We understand you've settled several cases against the church. I can't discuss that. There aren't any records of any of these settlements. Nope. When you're a poor kid from a poor family, and when a priest pays attention to you, it's a big deal. How do you say no to God? Spotlight. This is the tip line. You think you've got something? I want to keep digging. We need to focus on the institution. Show me that it came from the top down. Silence anyone who speaks up. You leave me alone, you hear me, goddammit? 6% act out sexually. 6% is 90. 90 priests. If there were 90 of these bastards, people would know. Maybe they do. You're going to give me the names and the names of their victims. Are you threatening me? I was doing my job. Yeah, you and everyone else. I am here because I care. We're going to tell this story. We're going to tell it right. We can keep this between us until we all get on the same page. Is that why we're here, to get on the same page? We've got two stories here. A story about degenerate clergy, and a story about a bunch of lawyers turning child abuse into a cottage industry. Which story do you want us to write? Because we're writing one. I'm not crazy. They control everything. This is not just Boston. It's a whole country. It's a whole world. 
they knew, and they let it happen. It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any of us. I will say, um, we watched a documentary as well about the same issue, um, in particularly about what another diocese out in California, another Catholic diocese. And what I will say is, after watching the two and juxtaposing them, that other documentary really got gory. It sort of like got in, dug into the sordid aspect of the sin that was going on and just really opened it up and got real particular about it. What I will say, if you haven't seen this film yet, don't, they don't get as particular about it. So the cringe factor, it's real and you feel sick to your stomach, but they're not trying to like tinker with your emotions by exposing you to more particulars than anyone should have to know. Um, and yet, it does, think about this idea of spotlight. The name for the movie is important. The name of the team is important. There's no mistake that the name of the team is also the title for the film. So in 2001, the film is about this um, spotlight investigative reporting team at the Boston Globe, and they uncovered a story about an abusive priest named John Gagan, who was in six parishes in the Boston Archdiocese over 30 years. He had been moved um, to other parishes, multiple parishes and schools, by Cardinal Bernard Law after having already been known to be an abuser of young boys. How horrible. So the team reveals this, they learn this, and then they have to try to decide what to do with it. And um, so again, remember, this is so hard to hear, the amount of people in our society that this affects directly cannot be underestimated. That's the thing. We think, well, no, surely no one in my church, surely no one in my um, social circles, surely no one in this. And that's when you have to realize it's far more rampant than we'd like to admit to ourselves. Um, so here's another clip uh, where they look into what Why? they're going to say. That's Law. why he had he the reaction. Bernard Law. He knew there were others. I think that's the bigger story. But the numbers clearly indicate that there were senior clergy involved. That's all they do, indicate. But are you telling me that, that if we run a story with 50 pedophile priests in Boston... Mike, we'll get into the same catfight you got into on Porter, which made a lot of noise, but changed things not one bit. We need to focus on the institution, not the individual priests. Practice and policy Show me the church manipulated the system so these guys wouldn't have to face charges. Show me they put those same priests back into parishes time and time again. Show me this was systemic, that it came from the top down. Sounds like we're going after law. And that's what they do. They go after cardinal law over the whole archdiocese of Boston. Did you see the um, character with the glasses and the scruff? Marty Barron is the real... real man that that character is based off of he came into the globe as a new editor and he w had these eyes from outside coming into this very insular community you know cities very often are not as insular as you might think and yet boston is one where there is a strong um, roman catholic community strong it's because of there's a bit there have been a lot of immigrants from ireland from italy over the last couple of centuries and so it's a very intensely Catholic city. And so it takes this, uh, this Jewish man from Florida, 
to come in as the new editor to say, we're actually going to look at this. We're going to take out our magnifying glass and begin to investigate. Um, they ended up, you hear them at this point, he's talking to this team and every member on the team is a lapsed Catholic. And one of the characters, I couldn't find the clip, one of the characters, Mark Ruffalo's character, which if you're not sure which one that is, he's the Incredible Hulk. You will also know him as the Incredible Hulk. Mark Ruffalo, his character says at one point, um, I stopped going to church for all the usual reasons. I just always expected I'd go back. Now I don't think I can. So you see um, throughout the course of the film that their own experience with church, their own experience with faith is deeply affected by this role, by this, um, by this, under, this investigative operation. So they ended up finding out that almost 200 priests had sexually abused children in the greater Boston area. There were 600 stories of abuse, far more than the 90 that they had at first estimated. We see too that there's another Catholic outsider who we saw. We didn't. We saw him in the in the trailer, but not in this one. We'll see another clip in a moment with him, played excellently by Stanley Tucci. He's such a good actor. Mitchell Garabedian. He's an Armenian lawyer, and he the real the real man worked tirelessly on behalf of the victims. And in the film, he's quoted as saying, "If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse them." So um, it, it spiraled. After the Spotlight team published their story in 2002, another 300 victims came forward. And um, the Boston Globe received, ended up receiving a Pulitzer Prize for public service in 2003 based on its reporting. Just some background about it. Any thoughts about that? It's hard material to even look at. It's hard for us, even as far removed as Birmingham, um, as far removed as Protestants, yet still Christians, to look at it and hear about it and say, did that really, did that really happen, number one? Number two, how in the world could that have happened? I can't believe it. How did that happen? What are you thinking as you hear this, um, as you see the trailer, and for anyone that's seen the film? Well, I grew yeah, up Roman Catholic, and yeah. I, I would never, you know, as a child, <coughs> Catholic school, singing in the choir, and the whole thing. Yeah. I never would have imagined of anybody I knew, any priests I knew, or well, I guess no, no nuns are involved in yeah. this. But, but I mean, I was immersed in it. Yeah. And living in different areas as well, Washington, D.C., California. Sure. And just uh, never a hint of, of anything. I mean, you know, when you're a child, what do you know anyway? But it, it, it just... Even when I grow up and look back, it's like, what? Yeah. yeah. And thank goodness. Thank goodness well, as yeah. a child you and, weren't and, aware. And, yeah. of course, it doesn't happen in every church. But that, you know, And I think that's one of the, that's the, the, the greatest damage that all this does is to paint so many thousands and thousands of good Catholic priests mm -hmm. with this yeah. awful stigma. 6% is a lot. It is a and lot. And so if you say 6%, then you have to think, well, that's okay. That's a lot of other percent. And then when you do, that, that are good. But then, and then when you do, but when you do the math, you say, that's far. 6% is too many. 1% is too many. 
Say it again. 6% to 90? 6% was 90, and that's what the, in there, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, that was there, that's what got them into their, their reporting method. They went to the journals of the Catholic Diocese, <laughs> and they looked through, they had noticed that there would appear this mention, well, he was moved to a different parish. Oh, he was on administrative leave. Oh, he was having um, he was having a therapy session, or there were these different terms that they would use for what would have happened when there was an accusation of abuse, and they would take a priest out of a situation, but they more often than not would put him back in a situation where he was still, um, still had access to children in parishes and in schools, and that's what's so sickening about it. You know, they would go through, so these reporters, they went through countless journals from countless years, you know, for about 30 years worth of journals, and they found every time it said administrative leave, and then they started to look up where the accusations come from, and they were all, the accusations were against those who had this administrative leave. So that's how they started to put two and two together. But the records had been sealed, and we'll see a clip about that, just how, how was it kept so silent for so long? But one of the ways, and we'll talk about this too, one of the ways in which it was kept silent is that people couldn't imagine that it would happen and then couldn't even see, didn't have eyes to see what was happening under their noses. In the other documentary that we watched, there's one family where it was the parish priest would stay over at their house. They had no clue. They were just welcoming him into their home. They had no clue. And it was happening right under their noses. And they were so outraged and disturbed by it. Um, and there's something about that. What, you know, how willing are we to, to acknowledge if there's something that's even just a little bit off and say, let's talk about this. If there's something even just a little bit off in our families, in our relationships, in our relationships with our children to say, you doing okay? What's going on? Or even without any pressure or freight. We don't want to assume the worst, but we want to plan for providing the best, I guess. Jeff, let me so, ask you a question. Please. This is mostly abuse against boys, correct? Boys and girls. Boys, boys and, and girls. girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm about to say, we always talk all the time about how uh, Satan attacks clergy. Yeah. And about how it's like the most effective way to undercut the work of the church and mm -hmm. Christ is to attack the clergy. And so there's always prayers we offer for y'all. Yeah. And yeah. Thank you. We need it. I mean, that's like coming straight to it really is. And that's why Jesus' words to leaders are so intense. Um, it's so intense. So there's this spiritual question, how could it happen? Is it Satan? Yes. In fact, the other documentary that we watched is called Deliver Us From Evil, which is a really good title. Um, and yet how horrible and how ironic that the evil's right there even within the church. What do we do with that? We expect the church to be better. We expect ourselves to be better, but even more than that, we expect our leaders to be better than that, right? So there's that aspect with the individual sin, the sins being committed by individuals. But then there's another layer to it where there's this systemic corruption. Something was going on within the organization that was evil on that level where it would instead of opening the door shedding light on these dark places everything became far more secretive once you start getting secretive about stuff like that once you it's that that um slippery slope of lying once you may and you've probably experienced this i hope you've experienced i don't i hope you haven't experienced this in your life but if you're human you probably have where there's just one lie and then you've got then 
then it's maybe just a little one. And then you've got to tell more to keep up the appearances of the first one. And you see that happening again and again and over and over and over again. Don't so, yeah. Time there's a powerful institution. Yeah. Don't you think there's a certain unwillingness to question authority? Absolutely. And Who's I'm going to Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right, Joe. And there's a great, I'm going to read to you a great quote from a canon. He's a canon lawyer within the Roman Catholic Church. I think they probably not allowed him to continue on as a priest because he's speaking out so much against the church. But he has some things to say about that. What is it theologically or structurally within the Roman Catholic Church that has made this happen, that has been conducive conditions for this kind of horrible thing to occur. That's also what makes it so easy for them to cover it up. So I want to do my job. Yeah. You know, like, part of my job is to preserve the sanctity of the church, and I can just, like, hide this one mm -hmm. thing away, it'll go away, and the church will be protecting the church and I think there are two things about that so I'm going to get into that in just just a minute but did you hear too on the on the personal one-on-one -on -one level how that victim in the trailer said when you're a poor kid from a poor family and when a priest pays attention to you it's a big deal how do you say no to God and there was another family in the other documentary who said he was the closest thing to God that we knew how horrible how much can you imagine, can't you imagine how this kind of trauma for the victims would influence their whole rest of their lives and certainly their faith in God? How do you believe in God when the person representing God to you most tangibly does something as horrible as this? Um, well, so there is, there are these, um, many people sort of point to the celibacy required by the Catholic Church as saying that's part of the structural aspect of what, what has come out. One of, the, um, one of the quotes that they do in the film, the, the investigative team interviewed a man named Richard Stipe, who's a former priest and psychologist who spent 40 years treating and studying the sexual behavior of priests. He's the author of a book called Sex, Priests, and Power, Anatomy of a Crisis. And based on his research, he estimates that 50% of all Catholic priests are not, in fact, celibate. And that's where his 6% came out, that 6% act out with children. And that's how the, the team started to look at, well, what, where is this 6% when they looked at the journals? So what do you do with that? They, you, there's been a study produced by the Catholic Church, by the Conference of Catholic Bishops in the U.S. in 2011 to really look into this through the John Jay Institute and try to provide more statistical evidence for why it was happening um, so prevalently. There's something about, they felt like there was something when they looked into the training in theological schools, a lot of um, seminarians, Catholic seminarians would come to the school so early on. And there is a common parallel between abuse, the abused becoming abusers. Um, and, and so there's more in that report than I've been able to get to just yet. But this other canon lawyer that I mentioned earlier, his name's Tom Doyle, he says that there is this approach within the Catholic Church to the laity, to those who aren't priests. And he, if you've heard this before, I've heard other people quote this before. He says, the laity pray, pay, and obey. How's that for not asking questions and keeping your mouth shut? <laughs> and so he really attributes that aspect um, within the dynamic there um, to, part, to part of what has produced this. The other thing he points to is that, um, that the bella figura is this idea within 
the Catholic Church, where's this it's this Italian Latin aspect idea of a man being successful in the church um, because of a good figure, because of presenting a good figure, an upstanding person. And so that presenting a good face to the world, presenting a good face to the church, allowing them to have someone to look up to and someone to idealize. Um, then when with that dynamic, if you think about that dynamic, if you're that person that's trying always to present the bella figura, the good foot forward, the good image, then you'll do anything. You will do anything to protect that image. You'll do anything to protect your reputation if you believe that God needs you to protect your reputation. Um, and that's, that's at the inherent level. It's God needs me to have my best foot forward so that he can have his best foot forward. Does that feel right or does that feel wrong or what? Is that different than what you just heard from the pulpit? It sounds really different than what I just heard from the pulpit. I guarantee you a Roman Catholic uh, you know, with this idea of the Bella Figura would not go up there and set, talk about eating the donuts and the ice cream in the middle of the night, I don't think. We try to tell tales on ourselves up there because we're trying to cut down that image of the Bella Figura um, because then that will help each one of us remember that it's in our, that God's power is made perfect in our weakness in putting forward our weakness, in allowing the light of Christ to look into the dark places in our hearts. That's where we receive forgiveness. That's where the healing comes from. That's where then other people um, can get plugged in through us to the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, I'm going to show um, one other aspect of this Bella figura that you see is that it, I think that's what caused these leaders within the church to go so far as to remove documents from the church, from the courts. Here's one more. So clip. I pull out the 14 most damning docs and I attach them to my motion. And they prove everything. Sorry about everything. the language, by about the way. About the church, about the bishops, about law. And it's all public. <laughs> because your motion to oppose Roger's motion is, is public. public. Yeah, exactly. Now you're paying attention. And so I could just walk into that courthouse right now and get those documents? No, you cannot. Because the documents are not there. But you just said they're public. I know I did. But this is Boston. And the church does not want them to be found. So, they are not there. Mitch, are you telling me that the Catholic Church removed legal documents from that courthouse? Look, I'm not crazy. I'm not paranoid. I'm experienced. Check the docket. You'll see. They control everything. Just because I like Mark Ruffalo, I'm going to show you another clip of his. Um, I think he has he's a good actor. There's another sequence where he um, where he goes he gets really upset. We, we got law. This is it. No, this is law covering for one priest. There's another 90 out there. Yeah, and we'll, we'll print that story when we get it. But we we got to go with this now. No, I'm not going to rush the story, Mike. We don't have a choice, Robbie. If we don't rush to print, somebody else is going to find these letters and butcher the story. Joe Quimby from the Herald was at the freaking courthouse. Mike. What? Why, why are we hesitating? Barron told us to get law. This is law. Barron told us to get the system. We need the full scope. That's the only thing that will put an end to this. So let's take it up to Ben. Let him decide. We'll take it to Ben when I say it's time. It's time, Robbie. It's time. They knew, and they let it happen to kids, okay? It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any of us. 
We gotta nail these scumbags. We gotta show people that nobody can get away with this. Not a priest or a cardinal or a freaking pope. There's this driving need for justice. Isn't it a beautiful thing? I think it's a beautiful thing when the secular world, when the Boston Globe has a driving need for justice. And very often that driving need for justice can have a whole political agenda behind it. But what's amazing about this film is that the agenda, you don't see them driving for people to um, fall away from their faith in God as a result of this. You see just this, and that I would say is from the director and the writer himself, and that's a good thing. There are other films that have um, tried to uncover this and talk about this driving need for justice, but they go this illogical step further to say, why believe in God? You can't believe in God. You can't trust a God who would let this happen. And, and if you can't trust the church. And that's, that's going too far. But rather, going to this place of seeing we need to have justice on this side of heaven, they're really cute, aren't they? Uh, we need to have justice on this side of heaven. So actually, there is some sense of satisfaction by the end of this movie. You see on some level that justice has been served. And yet also the, the making of this film is an effort to bring, um, bring even more justice, even through the upper, higher levels of the church. There are claims that... Um, that Cardinal Ratzinger was in a position while he was cardinal to prevent this abuse from happening. Um, there were claims, I've heard claims, that he was accused of conspiracy to cover this up, but President Bush granted him immunity from prosecution in the United States. Um, there's just this, they're trying to show that this is something that has affected the institution from the very bottom parish level all the way up to the top. And you hear that at the end with Mark Ruffalo's character saying, not a priest or a cardinal or a freaking pope can get away with this. No one should be able to get away with this. So what I would say about this crucial need for justice, this moral outrage, which we often hear in our culture, and often the moral outrage is against the church very often. Isn't that funny when there's this huge uh, moral outrage against the church for certain social conservatism or different things? It's very mm -hmm. interesting to me when there's that. But this is the thing that you see almost everyone in our culture, those who believe in God and those who do not, getting behind. Everyone is outraged by this. And I find that to be a, a beautiful thing in one respect. And this is maybe hedging my bets, but I would say what's beautiful about that is that there is, it's true, it's um, in our culture so often we relativize different moral absolutes. We say, well, that's okay. It's just, we'll take, um, the, especially sexually, we'll look at scripture and we'll say, well, it's okay about this. It's okay about that. That's okay. Interesting, isn't it, that this is where the buck stops for us as a society. This is where we are collectively outraged. I just think of those words from Judges 21-25 about the period before there were kings. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. feels sometimes today like everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And yet here we are united around this one great wrong with a capital W. The buck stops here, and that's very encouraging to me, even just about our um, morality as a culture, even despite all of our differences um, in religion and things like that that we experience in the West. The other thing I would say is, um, as Christians, when we hear this, what's so hard is that it's so shocking. We are indeed outraged, and we should be. Then what do we say? Are we sh We're really shocked but not surprised. 
we're reading scripture, if we're reading where um, Paul is talking in Romans chapter 7, if we know that, um, that even as Christians we are still uh, subjected to the flesh for a time, that our sinful nature is still allowed to be at work in us, even though we are bought with Christ's own blood, even though we are his precious children, there's some sin in my life that persists. I don't know about you. We heard Andrew talking about it as well. And that overlap will one day be over. We'll, we'll no longer be sinful from the moment we die. I like to be very depressing and think about that. I will die, and my sin will be there in the grave. It'll be gone, and I will be raised at the last day with Jesus Christ. And so that I find that encouraging. And so when I see this kind of horrible sin, I want to be shocked. I want to continue to be shocked but not surprised because that's what allows me to hold on to God the Father and to say, you, Lord, are victorious even over this horrible sin. You, Lord, are victorious even over this rampant sin present within your church. I will not let go of you even though I will cast a questioning eye upon your followers, your other followers, and upon myself as well. And that's what leads me to um, our, uh, my next point, which is that um, in this film, one of the things I love about this film is that you see the moral outrage. There we saw it with Mark Ruffalo. We'll see it also with Michael Keaton's character. But as you continue on, along in the film, his, their moral outrage transforms and is accompanied by conviction and self-judgment. They say, that's so awful, that's so awful. And often when we do that, we put ourselves over here and we divorce ourselves from complicity in it. And what this does, when we say, that's so awful, how didn't I see it? Lord, open my eyes to see it. Is there a sin in not seeing it and not knowing? This um, conviction and self-judgment, Michael Keaton says about it, he realizes that it was happening right next to him in his high school. He realized it could have been him, but he didn't sign up for the hockey team. He played band or whatever it was instead, and so he didn't fall under the, um, the into the hands of this one teacher that was abusing his friend, and he didn't even know about it. And this whole report, this whole investigation is what opened his eyes to it. He received all of this information from some victims 10 years before 2001 when this movie is set. And he's so humbled by realizing that he was the one. He didn't look into it. He couldn't believe it would have happened. And so he didn't open his eyes to see it. So when we allow our moral outrage to also be accompanied by conviction and self-judgment, when we judge ourselves and allow God's Holy Spirit to judge us, then Jesus' words in Matthew 7 will be true. He talks about this parable. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your, your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. These characters do that. How amazing to see them doing that and then continuing to go on and take more than speck out of the other's eye. They persist on. They obey the words of Jesus. One thing about that is that for us as Protestants, we too should not be um, so quick to judge. We should be quick to judge, but we should also turn the spotlight inward. There's a wonderful um, reporter and former child abuse prosecutor who's a Protestant very well-known Protestant. Let me tell you his name, and you can tell me if you've heard it before. His name is Boz 
Chavidian. Tullian's brother, Billy Graham's grandson. And he writes in, um, in, a, in a, a Protestant uh, magazine that Protestants are no better, that we also are focused overly on protecting reputations. He says, in addition to quietly moving or reassigning offenders, many Protestant institutions are no less savvy than the Boston Archdiocese in using money, shame, and guilt to influence survivors and their families to remain silent. He goes on to say, my prayer is that films like Spotlight will help enable us to move beyond vague platitudes and empty action. Perhaps we can start by acknowledging our failures and begin seeking ways to live out real repentance to the many precious lives lying beaten and wounded in our midst. A good word, a good word for us too, even as we point the finger, as we too are morally outraged, to say, Lord, let it not happen on our watch either. Lord, have mercy. Lord, open our eyes to see. I'm going to close with just two more quotes. Um, one is from a Catholic reviewer who also is very positive about Spotlight. He says, the only disinfectant that will really lead to cleansing is the bright light of truth. The truth is so painful, and that's why this film is so painful. And yet it's the kind of disinfecting painfulness, the kind like the hydrogen peroxide that's going to cleanse out the wound, that's going to cleanse the wound from any potential infection. Um, Mark Ruffalo also talks about the hope that now, because of this film, there could be more healing. He says he's hoping that um, the Catholic Church will take this as a chance to heal the wounds that were opened around the world. And then um, in an interview with Colbert, Stephen Colbert, we hear also again Mark Ruffalo. I just kept listening to his interviews. I don't know why. But anyway, Colbert says, um, the heartbreaking thing is that for so many people out there, it actually sullied the place that would have been a solace for the kind of heartbreak or the psychic damage created by the immediate abuse of the priests. Or the heartbreaking thing is the people who now, when they go into a church, feel guilty for going into a Catholic church that could allow this to happen. And he says the only possible way to heal is for the truth first to be known. That's where this spotlight is hard. Um, the spotlight shining into these dark places. I'll never rem forget um, moving into my apartment in New York City and my best friend from college and I, we had gotten the keys to the apartment. The next day they were coming to bring our stuff, and by they I mean the men in our family. And we were so <laughs> intent, we have such an ideal of cleanliness that we were like, we can't bring the stuff in without cleaning first because the last people didn't clean well enough. And then that day, New York City, all of the lights went out. There was this huge blackout. The power grid upstate had totally failed. It was the blackout of 2003. And there we were, but we were not going to be deterred from cleaning. So there we were with candles and flashlights and camp lanterns trying to clean our apartments. I'll never forget, I was standing on the kitchen countertop cleaning on, I'm that kind of cleaner, cleaning on top of the cabinets. And the next morning, of course, in the light of day, we looked around and we realized that all of our effort had been for naught. We should have waited till daylight when that bright light would shine and we could see all of the places that really needed to be cleaned. That is what 
the truth does to us. That is what the truth in Jesus Christ does to us. Shine this light, the light of day, into the dark places. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for shining your light, the light of your love, the light of your truth into the dark places in our hearts and into the dark places in our world. And we just ask, Lord, that you would bring to light all of as horrible as it is. We want to see the dirt. We want to see the places that need to be cleaned. Lord, would you convict us? Lord, would you convict and restrain those in the world and even in your church that have done so much harm? Lord, would you bring repentance and healing, we ask. Shine the light of your truth and then apply the balm of your love to our hearts, to our church, and to our world, we ask in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.